HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. I'm Erica Wides, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. And welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, here at Heritage Radio Network. And many of you realize, if you're listening live um, or within these next couple of weeks, that we are in the harvest time here for everyone's gardens who have the, the, the luxury of being able to garden or the hard work of being able to garden. And I thought, what a better time to talk about vegetables and early American vegetables than during harvest time. And I think the harvest moon is coming up soon. I, I do look forward to that. My guest today knows a lot about early American cuisine, early American cooking, and particularly early American gardening. He is William Woise Weaver, an internationally known food historian and author of 16 books, I think 16 and counting, including A Quaker Woman's Cookbook and The Christmas Cook, a 300-year history of American Christmases. Um, well, let me let me go back down. Let me go down the list here because they are really terrific books. He's uh, done Pennsylvania Dutch cooking and sours. Uh, forgive me, my yes, uh, um, Doctor Weaver, you can help me out here. It was sours herb. What is it? Herbal cures. Sours herbal cures. Thank you. It was down at the bottom of my page. Thank you. Um, America's first herbal. And how I first met him was he gave a talk to the culinary historians on sauerkraut Yankees. And the book that I knew would fill the bill for today's show is Heirloom Vegetable Gardening that he wrote a few years ago. Uh, William has been a, a contributor to so many articles and, and television shows and radio shows. He is notably 
the founding president of Historic Foodways Society of the Delaware Valley and served as the associate editor uh, and art editor of the Encyclopedia of Food and Culture. That encyclopedia received um, a Dartmouth Medal, which is one of the highest awards for reference books. And I could go on and on, William, but I just want to welcome you to my show, and I want to hear it straight from your mouth. <laughs> well, thank you for having me on the air. This is a great pleasure. Well, yes, we are in the middle of harvest. Indeed, and it's, and it's exciting, and I thank you for taking the time, and I know that it's a busy time for you because what we will talk about later in the show is that uh, William is very involved in heirloom seed saving, and we're going to talk about his project on um, heirloom seeds uh, as we continue on the show. But you have done a lot of work, particularly on the Pennsylvania Dutch, having, I guess, living in that region, but a lot on the Pennsylvania Dutch cooking. But then that's all early American cooking. And when I forgot to mention a very fun, a great book, As American as Shoe Fly Pie. I think that was your most recent book, right? That is indeed. In yeah. Print. And that's on, on Pennsylvania Dutch cuisine. Uh, what I um, thought was very interesting about... Um, the early American cooking is that so many people are not aware that vegetables were very much a part of the colonial and early American food scene, if you will, on their on their plates and on their on their uh, in their gardens. I think a lot of people have this vision of kind of our more rustic, you know m- meat and and roasts and maybe just a bunch of squashes, I guess we're thinking. You know, uh, Thanksgiving, those Thanksgiving myth celebrations, but not so. Um, And I know that uh, Thomas Jefferson's gardens at Monticello just had a big celebration, big anniversary. Um, But tell us a little bit about the about early American gardens. Well, I I would say that. there is a great deal of regional identity. In other words, the New England kitchen garden was very different from the southern, very different from the middle state. So there was an enormous amount of biodiversity based on climate and soil. Um, also, uh, you have to look at the finances of the uh, particular person or family in the colonial period. Someone like Thomas Jefferson was very wealthy, and his kitchen garden was not only intended to feed a large number of people because he had a huge amount of staff in his house. But also, uh, it was a status thing among the well-to-do to have beautiful vegetables. And uh, so there was a lot of, um, you might say, social peer pressure on the, the well-to-do in, throughout the colonial era um, to grow vegetables and have fine uh, kitchen gardens. In the Victorian period, this is replaced with flowers. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> well, and, and you only have to look... eat, but they're beautiful. Right. Well, you look, um, look to Colonial Williamsburg, and they, they sort of had to revive their gardens from, yeah, from that shift as well. And right, right. So we're, we're looking at the, the early American culture through several layers from particularly the Victorian period, which more or less, with, with Colonial Revival, sort of rewrote the history of our early foods through very rose-colored glasses, if you will. Um, even poor people, though, ate a, a lot of uh, different kinds of foods. I would say uh, if they didn't have large kitchen gardens, they certainly ate a lot of foraged foods. And by that, I mean they went in 
to the woods and into the roadsides and what have you and collected greens. And so they supplemented their diet with um, wonderful wild plants that are very nutrient, uh, you know, concentrated nutrient value in that. So um, that's one of the uh, points that I brought out in the um, in my book um, as American as shoe fly pie because even the buckwheat Dutch, as we called them, the poor Dutch who lived in the hills and ate buckwheat bread, and because buckwheat only grew on bad ground, even they ate rather interesting things that we no longer eat today, like chinkapins, uh, wild chestnuts. Um, they're, in fact, coming in right now in Pennsylvania, and mm. I have a big box of them in, in my kitchen. So there was, there was a, a good, a good uh, biodiversity there in, in, in dietary choice. We've lost that. Today we have, what, five or six uh, commercial apples in the stores. I mean, our whole uh, diet has been focused down onto these uh, very uh, limited selection of commercially raised foods, and I would like to talk about that, the nutritional value of that Absolutely, absolutely. At some point, yeah. because we we really know a lot a lot more right now about what's going on nutritionally. Um, something called the dilution effect. In other words, since 1950 to 2000, there's been a huge decline in the food value, um, uh, the nutritional value of our food. And um, if you go back to the colonial period and you start raising those heirlooms. Uh, uh, organically, the way well, there was only organic um, agriculture in those days. The food is better for you. Mm-hmm. Just, uh, well, just so, looking uh, at the that some of the early cookbooks, like Amelia Simmons or or um, Mary Randolph, you see so many recipes for salads, salads galore, of, made with all kinds of things. And then when you mentioned that they went and foraged, that was something I was curious about: how much of the vegetables were wild versus cultivated. Um, but well, then, we don't really know because we don't have diaries to tell us, well, we went out in the fields and collected dandelion, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. although we have some of that information. Mm-hmm. Um, probably it varied from family to family. Uh, for sure, before the Industrial Revolution, before the 1850s, even well-to-do people were not at all embarrassed to go out in the fields and collect wild sorrel and that kind of thing and incorporate that into their diets. It was just it's what you did. Um, and as uh, we became urbanized, uh, we, we, there were these social stigmas against eating poverty foods like that. We right. wanted to eat white bread, meat, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, and that, that really changed uh, American attitudes towards uh, wild harvest foods. But now look what's happened. That, that is all back. That movement is, is back in force, yeah. You know, it's interesting because when you said um, in the Heirloom Vegetable Gardening book, you yourself wrote that when you began to write about gardening, uh, that for me, what you did is you dispelled for me, and I'm sure many other readers, a very prominent century-old myth that persists today. And that is that since the coming of the industrialization, that we've, all, we've looked to the Mediterranean for a return to the birthplace of real food. And so that's really why I wanted to talk about, especially with you, you know, where, where the real food was even before then. Well, it was all over the place. It wasn't just in the Mediterranean. I think um, the, the Mediterranean myth has sort of taken over. Everything today is now Tuscan. Right. I mean, t- 
Tuscan fish recipes when they don't eat fish in Tuscany, <laughs> that kind of thing, you know. Um, but look, there's a huge movement of back back to the woods, even in Scandinavia, and there are a lot of famous restaurants now in in uh, Sweden and Denmark, and they're eating their own regional foods, and these were there all the while. Uh, we've just forgotten that we used to eat these foods too. Uh, perhaps in the Mediterranean uh, area, people, the, the villagers were not as well off, so they, they kept to some of the older practices, and we've looked at that uh, area uh, as, as sort of a model. But, you know, um, I'm doing work on medieval, the foods of medieval Cyprus, and that takes me into a whole new, another planet in terms of diet. And uh, they were they were not using olive oil. They were using the fat of the ta- of fat-tailed sheep hmm. as their basic cooking fat. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, people were more active years ago. The houses weren't heated, so we burned our calories differently. And um, some of these historical diets are very interesting to study because, in terms of their their period, they were they were really very healthy. Um, because they fulfilled certain uh, nutritional needs. We have to realize that um, eating uh, heirloom breeds of of sheep or whatever, we may have to adjust the way we consume this because of of the way we live today. But just the same, uh, I think chefs all over the world are beginning to realize that in terms of flavor, in terms of uh, visual preparation, the heirloom uh, breeds of, of Animals and vegetables are really where it's happening at the moment. The, the, the downside, I would say, is that it's not trickling down to the, the bottom level of society where there is a real nutritional problem in our inner cities, and those people are not getting this. It's being you know, showcased in high-end restaurants. But this will change. I think we'll see some um, very good changes over the next 20 years in that. Right. Well, you know, urban provisioning is, has been, that's an issue that, uh, it's a whole other show, and, and I've, not, yeah, have, have been done, but that is a problem indeed, as you mentioned. Yes, but, um, but I mean, the, the diversity of vegetables in the 1600s through the end of the seven, even 1700s, I'm, I'm Amazed when I I read some of the um, the recipes and the accountings of the types of vegetables. Um, but in those types of vegetables that we read about, have they changed over the years? Um, you know, with hybridization and and things. In other words, are we still eating the same uh, celery now or tomatoes now that we ate that they ate um, three centuries ago? Um, well, it is possible to to eat the tomatoes from the 1500s if you want to, because the um, the, the um, genetic material still exists. I have ancient Mexican tomatoes um, in my own seed collection. However, let's take the tomato as an example, because this is sort of an icon vegetable in the United States. Um, tomatoes changed. Uh, we over. During the uh, Victorian period, the breeders created round, smooth, red tomatoes. This became sort of the ideal, a tomato that looks like a Christmas tree bulb. Um, The old ones didn't look like that. They were ruffled or they had lots of different uh, odd shapes to them. Sometimes they were hollow. 
But they took the current, the red current tomatoes and crossed them with the, the large red ruffled ones, and they got these round, smooth. So over time, the, the physical appearance of, of the plants or the, or the fruits, if you will, the tomato in this case, uh, changed because we imposed um, new criteria on them. The, the canners, the you know, in New Jersey, the canning industry wanted these beautiful red round tomatoes. This is, was good for their their 19th century profits. Uh, carrots and well, beets have changed. They're, they used to be carrot shaped. We bred them to be round. In fact, now we've got these flat beets that grow on top of the soil with very small roots. They, they, they were developed to be uh, raised um, on table height. Um, beds inside of greenhouses so that the super rich in you know in Europe in the 19th century would have these beautiful picture perfect vegetables all year around hmm. um, so I would say all of all of the basic vegetables that we know of have been tinkered with in some way or another but I still have medieval cabbage for example which is open-headed it looks like a great big mm, green carnation because <laughs> yeah. all the leaves are you know, spread apart, it, it doesn't fold together to form a, a head. That's something we've taught cabbage to do. Right. So when we're raising heirlooms, we've got two, uh, we've got two things going uh, in the garden. We've, we're, we're trying to keep the, the plant stock alive, but we're also constantly correcting uh, the plants to keep them to growing true to their old standard because plants want to revert to their wild state. And I have the Roughwood Seed Collection, and uh, this is one of the uh, big tasks we've got right now because we're harvesting seed, which we will be selling through Baker Creek Heirloom Seed Company this fall and Hudson Valley Seed Library. And uh, we want our seed to grow true and to look like the heirlooms that were um, really very, some very famous ones, which we're going to be releasing this fall. Uh, well, it's a lot... Mm-hmm. It's a lot I, of work. Because yeah, it is, and I and I actually want to get to that work because um, I want to hear about these the seed collection and the heirloom uh, seeds. Talk more in detail about that, but let's take a short break so we can really get into the the heirloom seed talk. Okay, so stay tuned. If I had a magic wand, tomorrow everyone in the world would have enough food to eat that was culturally appropriate and delicious. The planet would be thriving because all the food would have been grown and produced in a way that sustains us, both our bodies and our, our world. But man, I do not have a magic wand. What I do have is you and this radio station, the Heritage Radio Network. That's what we're here to do. We're here to help lead the way to a future that's more delicious, that's more fun, where we're healthier, where the planet's healthier, and we want you to be a part of that. We can't do it without you. As a nonprofit radio station, we depend on the support of our listeners. So take a minute out of your day, visit the website, and click the big beating donate tab. Throw us a few bucks. 
Every bit helps. We're counting on you. The following program was brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards and Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. Hi, we're back on A Taste of the Past, and I'm talking with William Moyes Weaver about early American vegetables and heirloom vegetables. I want to mention our break music. Um, you heard the, the lovely and haunting voice of Odetta Hartman. I want to make sure that I mentioned that. Uh, Dr. Weaver is also, um, I, I read all kinds of wonderful um, uh, projects that he's involved in and books that he's written, but something now that leads into this discussion is he is on the board, he's a board member of the GMO Free Pennsylvania, and um, not the GMO, it's GMO Free Pennsylvania, and the Experimental Farm Network, which is a grassroots organization devoted to alternative methods of seed production. And, William, that I think is a great way to start this discussion. You have, as you mentioned, the Roughwood Seed Collection. Now, this is a project that was started by your grandfather, correct? That's right. He began gathering seeds in about 1932, uh, primarily because uh, he was working on our family history. We're from Lancaster County, and he was connecting with cousins and relatives out there and it was a depression and he wanted to grow food for his family so that was the basic reason it started but then it grew and grew and grew and then i've added to it over the years well it's it's interesting because um there are a couple of seed saver projects around the seed savers exchange of course is um the one that many of us know about and they're now trying to keep these seeds in you know in safe locations all over. Um, tell me about the, which, how do you, when you get what you assume to be an heirloom variety, take me through the process a little bit. Well, um, for example, I've, my grandfather was um, a friend of uh, Horace Pippin, who was an African-American artist. Mr. Pippin would visit my grandfather to get stung by bees because Mr. Pippin had a bad arm and this bee sting would help his arthritic condition. So he would give my grandfather peppers, uh, uh, and peppers of really very beautiful colors, because Pippin had an artistic eye. So we've got the Pippin peppers, and they've got Mr. Pippin's story attached to them. Where he got them, I don't know. This was before my time. So I have an an interest in African and African-American heirloom plants, and uh, I've been gathering what I can of that. I was also involved with um, uh, Native American peoples. I was on the Indian Committee at Philadelphia Yearly Meeting. That's a Quaker organization. And through that, I inherited um, quite a large collection of very, very rare endangered Native American corns and squash, some of which came from Gladys Tantaquidgen, who lived in uh, Connecticut. She was a Mohican, did a book on Delaware Indian um, folk healing, and Gladys gave me uh, sweet corn, uh, and now I think I'm the only person who's got it. 
It's Delaware Blue Sweet Corn. We've now got Hummingbird, which is a speckled sweet corn, Mass Dance, which is a purple sweet corn. We've got the White Wolf, uh, which is a white sweet corn, Sindamokan, which is blue, Sand Hill, which is gray, Mother Turtle, which is variegated. So right there, we've got five or six varieties of sweet corn that you've never, ever seen in a market. And they are absolutely uh, incredible eating. <laughs> and um, we're just now growing these out in isolation, first so they don't get polluted with GMO pollen, right. secondly so that we can take these up to commercial scale, either sell the seed or sell the corn, because I, I'm not collecting uh, genetic material for the Roughwood Seed Collection to make uh, a seed library, you know, like a collection of Egyptian artifacts. This is about food, food waiting to happen, food that's got to go back into the system and be part of our, our culture. This, this food was eaten in colonial times, and it was long forgotten, but a few people were growing it out in the 19th century and the early 20th. Unfortunately, it's not extinct, but uh, I've become something of a Noah's Ark, which uh, worries me greatly because at age 68, it's, I have to think about what's going to happen to all of this down the road. But the basic thing is that each one of these heirloom plants that comes into the collection, I try to get documentation, I try to get the stories, because this is part of the cultural heritage of the American people, and it belongs to all of us. Right. Well, and and you wrote that the collection of the your the Roughwood Sea collection comprises about four thousand varieties. About, about of four thousand, yeah, about four thousand five hundred. We keep adding um, things to it, and um, we just received a, a lot of seeds from Africa, and uh, we were growing them this year. So, um, if if they if they do well in our climate and they have good food potential, we add them to the collection. Mm-hmm. I have a, um, a Roughwood Seed Collection manager, and that's Owen Taylor. Owen is, abs- is here today in the garden um, doing all kinds of jobs. But um, So I'm not doing this single-handedly. Owen brings in uh, volunteers, and uh, since we're going to be operating uh, – as a 501c3 nonprofit under the Experimental Farm Network, uh, we're going to be able to um, to uh, get donations, and we already have been using um, the, uh, the, the 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 people that come here and donate their time. We've been giving them workshops, free training in seed collecting, roguing. That means um, taking off plants, pulling them out, and keeping the varieties pure, and you know, growing to specification. So this is an art that has been lost, and um, it's very important that people learn this, how to do this, because if they're going to be growing their own food, they will want to be in control of their own seeds. All right, well, and it's interesting because they, they, to me that um, one doesn't think about, well, where did Prior to you know in the colonial times, where did they get their seeds? Whatever they brought with them from wherever, because there were no seed catalogs prior to no. seventeen ninety six. I think was the first seed catalog, right? We, uh, yeah, no, seven, yeah, the seventeen nineties. We start getting seed catalogs, but before that, there were lists of seeds published in um, newspapers. So they they more or less acted like catalogs. 
Um, what, what happened in the colonial period is that most of the seed stock was coming from Europe, either England or Holland or Germany. The Mennonites in Pennsylvania were connected to the Mennonites in Holland, and so there were a lot of Dutch seeds sent mm-hmm. over in the, in the colonial period. Um, we didn't have people in, in, in the colonial period. We didn't have a lot of people who were trained in plant breeding and seed saving. So we had to rely on European uh, seed crops like turnips, cabbage, all of that was being done in Europe. By degrees, however, American uh, plantsmen began to breed their own because, first of all, a lot of the European varieties weren't well adapted to our climate. You know very well, you, with cucumbers, uh, in, in England you have to grow them in cold frames um, it's too hot in our summer now for many of the, the old varieties. So all of these adjustments had to be made here in the United States. And then we, we really did take over the seed breeding um, uh, business. And I would say it was focused in Philadelphia. There were maybe 10 or 15 um, internationally known seed companies in Philadelphia right down into the 1920s. And all that breeding was being done right here. Uh, up in Bucks County, first of all, and then it moved to California because they had a much easier, you know, a longer growing period out there. But um, so the seed, the seed saving and the seed uh, breeding uh, end of the story is something that has a very interesting. It's gone through a series of uh, stages here in the country. Right. But, I know um, there there are some uh, people who in rural areas of particularly Vermont and upstate New York. I'm talking only about you know, the East Coast that I know of that right. that um, do have always saved their their seeds, whether they be particularly beans um, and different varieties of of tomatoes and um, uh, squash, and it was sort of like a you know I guess the Grange the, every community had a Grange or something and there would be time when they could exchange seeds and right. and it, it never did we realize how important that would be um, and well this is true I would also have to add that in Pennsylvania um, we ha- we're actually a very large state with five different culinary regions and um, it's a lot more complicated than the outside world imagines but we have these wonderful hidden valleys up in central Pennsylvania where families have been there for hundreds of years and they're growing, they're still growing some of these Native American squash that I thought were extinct and I've been collecting them over the past, oh what, five or six years and it's amazing what's still out there. So it's, it's, it's not all grim. Yeah. Um, uh, it's just a matter of making the right connections and I think with PASA, that's the Pennsylvania Association for Sustainable Agriculture, and sister organizations like that in other parts of the country. I think the the awareness of our our food riches is is, is growing. Uh, it, it it's this is a very good thing because uh, if you go to Europe, they think that all we eat are hamburgers at a McDonald's. And, <laughs> you know, uh, frankly, I've never eaten in a McDonald's, but. Um, well, I have I have my own food agendas, but that's another story. Just the same, I think it comes as a huge surprise to people outside the United States that we have this incredible um, culinary heritage, and it's based on these wonderful food plants and these historic vegetables that we've been growing for centuries. 
Well, we certainly here at Heritage Radio Network are trying to spread the word and uh, educate people as to some of the wonderful projects that are going on now and and things that went on in the past. You mentioned something early at the top of the show that I, I wanted to touch on before we uh, run out of time, and that is you talked about the dilution of nutritional value in in right. some of the vegetables. Uh, just give me a, a brief background on, well, on that and what it, happened and why. Yeah, well, it's called the dilution effect, and we actually have now nutritional data to prove that this has happened. Since hybridization started in the 1950s, um, the food value uh, has declined in, the, in commercially raised foods. The, the, by commercially raised, I mean these big agri-farms, agribusiness is growing, you know, thousands of acres of tomatoes right. and shipping them from all over the country. Um, the decline is anywhere from 20 to 30 percent, depending on what you're measuring. Um, when you talk about the nutritional value of food, there are vitamins, there are minerals, there are all lot, lots of different things. That, that come into play, and it's, it varies from type of plant to type of plant. But the bottom line is that we're eating a lot of food with empty food value, and so we're having our brains are telling us we've got to eat more in order um, to satisfy our, you know, the, the, the little bells that go off in our body that say you're not, you're not getting enough of this, you're not getting enough of that. We did a, at Drexel University when I was teaching there, we did a, um, an experiment with tomatoes, and it, uh, we had a pound of, of heirloom tomatoes raised organically, the, the same food value you would get from a pound and a half of commercial hybrid tomatoes. Hmm. So in other words, you have to eat more of those hybrids in order to get the same food value as you would from, a, from an heirloom raised organically. And that's because the organic... Uh, method of agriculture is drawing up trace minerals and nutrients from the soil, which the hybrids are not because they're being fertilized with chemicals. They're just pulling up the chemicals from the ground. The plants are not drawing out uh, this out of the ground the same kind of um, material that, that that the organic plants do. So it's uh, it's complicated. But the the sad thing is, you go to the supermarket, you're buying food that's been shipped in from somewhere else, and it really doesn't have, it's empty food. It's just, it's, it's as bad as junk food. Mm. Well, I, hopefully one day we can bring all this great produce to everyone and have more more green markets everywhere. And, right. Well, and, New York's got wonderful get the, green markets. We so do, we do. It's out there. <laughs> but bring it into the grocery, you know, bring it into the big supermarkets where, right. you know, people are able, people who live in, in what we now call food deserts, if they will, I mean, that just have, you know, access to very poor nutritive valued foods that we can bring this into the supermarkets and there they would just be able to walk in and get it. But well, that uh, I, I have, a, and that's another story too. And I, there's some fault in urban planning. You know that you, t- you, yeah. know, you go up to some these old original colony towns in Virginia or whatever, and you, they were planned. You know, in with plots set aside for the gardens with the houses. Exactly. And, all right, and what happened? You know, we just yeah. let's put up another skyscraper and another parking lot. Well, uh, we try we try at the Roughwood Seed Collection to spread the goodness around because if we have extra seedlings or extra seed, we don't throw them away or compost them. We send them into Philadelphia so that the inner city community gardens can benefit from them. So at least it's going to be food for somebody. 
Right. Um, oh, that's, so that's one of the things we've been doing. Okay. One last question, because I, I, I know we've gone over, and I've, and there's just so much interesting information. My last question to you is how you mentioned 15 um, Mexican tomato seeds from the 1500s. Are those the oldest seeds in your collection? No. The, I think the oldest pure variety is a, um, a melon from Cyprus, a, a Copnu melon. Uh, it's depicted in Roman mosaics. Mm. So we've got a melon that's growing that's several thousand years old, and it hasn't changed. It, you eat this melon as though it's a cucumber. Wow, that's fabulous. That That is, I just, I'd love to plant all those seeds in my backyard. <laughs> if I had a backyard, <laughs> that, would, that would be terrific. Uh, well, I just, I look forward to hearing more from you, and I can't wait for the foods of medieval Cyprus. Wow. Well, that's going to be an interesting one. Yeah, yeah. Volume um, one is done. <laughs> you are just, you are a, a terrific resource for us, and I thank you so much for sharing your time and all your information. And hopefully you will inspire others to do the same. And that the Keystone, um, the Keys, what is it, the Keystone Farm Keystone Project? Center, yeah. For Keystone Center. Center. Right. We're, we have a board meeting coming up, and you're going to hear more about Keystone because we're revising our website, and we're going to do a conference on sustainability. It's a Keystone Center for the Study of Regional Foods and Food Tourism. So right. that that will help spread the word as well. And I encourage people to continue listening to our show and many shows um, on on the Heritage Radio Network because we, we do try to incorporate so many of these wonderful programs and talk about ways of of saving our food. Well, William, thank you so much. And I would like to thank my engineer, Liz Smith, of course. And you have been listening to A Taste of the Past. And I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. And up next, you're going to hear a short clip from one of our shows called Foment About It. Carbonation. Oftentimes, it's it's the most forgotten about ingredient in beer. You know, it really determines your perception of dryness and can change your texture and flavor of your of your beer uh, greatly. On episode 126 of Foment About It, Ben Granger gives valuable advice on how to get the desired amount of carbonation in a brew to prevent your final product from falling flat. Now that brewing and brewing culture has grown to a point that people are like really, really aware of that, and especially you know, professional brewers are aware of that, um, it's very important or a good idea, anyways, to bottle any of your beer that you're bottling off of a keg, not bottle condition, but bottling off a keg, via counter pressure. And what it basically does is when you transfer from the keg to the bottle, the bottle is pressurized so that as it fills, there's no oxygen in the bottle, and the CO2, your desired level of CO2 that you put in there on purpose, stays in saturation. That way, when, you know, if you're at, I don't know, a brewery and you get a counter pressure bottle fill. On a growler. That way, when you open it at home, it's exactly as the brewer intended you to consume it, which was the whole reason why I did it in the first place. For the rest of Ben's interview, check out the rest of episode 126 of Ferment About It. And if you're interested in mastering the art of home brewing, you can listen to all episodes of Ferment About It on HeritageRadioNetwork.org and iTunes. Heritage Radio Network is a member-supported nonprofit organization broadcasting over 30 live shows a week. To learn more and donate, visit our website or connect with us on iTunes, Stitcher, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram for more. Thanks for listening.